You'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. I'll read our sermon text for us now. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man once to, to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few moments, we will leave this place and go to our homes or the homes of family members, and we will push out 2023. We're going to welcome in the new year. I don't know what traditions you have. Maybe you play board games. Uh, My dad, for whatever reason, he has to eat black-eyed peas on New Year's Day. Um, Is that a thing? Okay, I see, I don't know that tradition. Uh, I, maybe you're going to watch the Rose Bowl and the Rose Parade and watch for Trader Joe's float. Uh, they have one every year. It's got a big piece of broccoli this year. Whatever it is, we will all in our own way celebrate the ringing in of the new year. Ringing in of the new year. But, you know, a lot of times whenever we ring in the new year, it's not like we're saying good riddance to 2023. I had a pretty good 2023, and I hope you did too. Whenever we say new in context of the, the new year, a lot of times what we mean is just on to the next year, the, 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 the next one. But there is a sense in which new means something different particularly when we put it in contrast with the old. This week, if, you're anything, if your house is anything like mine, nothing is ever easy. I, this week, I had to plug in a toaster oven. That is what I needed to do. And boy, three hours later, I, I realized, okay, nothing is ever easy. I was trying to pull out the fridge so that I could plug in the new toaster oven, and 
as I was pulling out the fridge, I noticed that there was, it needed to be cleaned back there, so I tried and scoot out the fridge a little bit more. And as I did that, all of a sudden I get the fridge out. I'm like, okay, I think I can fit back there. Maybe an inch more, water starts shooting everywhere. The ice water line cracked, and water starts going everywhere. So then I'm getting towels, and then I'm turning off water. And I look on the back of the fridge, and I see that that ice water line was 21 years old, and it cracked. So I needed to put a new one on. So a trip to Menards, uh, finding, you know, cutting hoses and running new lines. And two and a half hours later, I have a new ice water maker line. Now, I have a new ice maker water line. What do I do with that old piece of tube that's like gross? It's 20 years old. There's like hard water built up on it. And who knows what else? Did I keep it and say, I'm going to hold on to this and use it as a drinking straw? Or, oh, well, this could come in useful. What do you think I did with it? I threw it in the garbage. That thing was done. It was old and it was worn out. This is the understanding that in the book of Hebrews, Paul, who I believe is the author of this book, wants us to have. He wants us to understand that Christ has come, he's brought the new covenant, and because he's brought the old covenant, we don't need the old covenant anymore. It would be like trying to hold on to that old, gross hose. It served its purpose, it cracked, now I have a new one. It's clean. The book of Hebrews, just to remind us a little bit of the context, was written to Christians in the first century. And it was written to Christians who were very tempted very tempted to turn aside from the message of Jesus Christ, to turn aside from trusting in Him because their lives were difficult. In the first century, if you were a Christian, there was persecution. There was persecution for you from the Roman government. There was persecution for for you from the Jewish Sanhedrin. Remember Paul. Paul was persecuting Christians in his zealousness for Judaism. Persecution, it it didn't matter who you turned to. Now, if you were practicing Judaism, then there was freedom for you from the Roman government. And it seems as if Christians in the first century might have been tempted to say, okay, this Jesus guy, he's cool, I like him, but my life has been so much more difficult, why don't I turn back to something else, either Judaism or the Roman pantheon of gods, or whatever other local worship practices might seem to make your life easier. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Hold fast to the faith. Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm on Christ. The book of Hebrews, in a lot of ways, the structure of it is like a snowman. There's three tiers, the big ball on the bottom, and then a smaller ball, and the head. And the big foundation of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than the temple, Jesus is better than, and it goes on and on and on. The second part of this snowman, which we started really in chapter 8, and we'll go through today, finish uh, this week and, uh, and the next time that we preach through Hebrews, is the idea and the concept of the new covenant, the new covenant. And then the head of the snowman is... Okay, Jesus is better, we have the new covenant, then how are we to live? So we've been in this middle part of the snowman for a little while, 
We first saw the nature of the new covenant in chapter 8. The nature of the new covenant, it is that it is a covenant of the forgiveness of sins for all who believe in Christ Jesus. The last time in Hebrews 9, 1-14, we saw what life in the new covenant was like. It's a life of worship, whereby our, our, our souls and our hearts are raised to new life. They're cleansed by the blood of Christ so that we might worship Him. And today, we're going to see how the new covenant is brought about. How the new covenant is brought about. In a way, we're giving some theological legs to what Eric talked about last week, that we read the Old Testament differently because we have the New Testament. We read the Old Testament different, or we see things differently because we have the New Covenant. So how is the New Covenant brought about, and what does that mean for us? That's what we're going to observe today from Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. And verse 15 is is almost like a summary for the rest of the passage, because all the ideas of the passage are contained in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we have three things there that I want us to look at. First is that there is a new covenant of which Christ is the mediator. There is a new covenant of which Christ is the mediator. The second thing, and this is at the end of verse 15, it's after since, it's that the new covenant is brought about by a death that redeems from transgressions. And the third thing is that this new covenant brings with it a promised eternal inheritance. That the idea of covenant is is overriding in this text comes from the fact that that word, covenant, appears At first glance, it appears four times. It appears four times in this passage. And of those four times, it occurs with a modifier. Um, We're teaching Gwen uh, about adjectives. And, you know, we don't just want to say good or bad. We want quality adjectives. There are quality adjectives that are describing the covenant in this passage. And we need to understand what that means. We see that he's a mediator of not just Covenant, but new covenant. Then the second time we see covenant, it's in verse 15, committed under the first covenant. Again in verse 18, uh, that not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Um, And then again in verse 20, that the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. This covenant just doesn't appear in the ether, there's, there's a modifier that tells us what the covenant is. Paul is comparing for us here the new and the old covenant. Much like that hose that I threw out because it was old, it had been used up, and I have a new covenant, Paul is saying that we have a new covenant. We have a new covenant. Now, my definition for covenant that I think is, is helpful is to understand covenant as a relationship between two parties or two people that is based upon a promise. The, most, the, the easiest way for us to think about a covenant is the covenant of marriage. It's between a husband and a wife. It's a binding relationship that's based on a promise. It's based on a promise to love and to cherish and to hold till death do us part. 
But in the Old Testament, we see covenants over and over and over again. We see covenants between God and his people. We see covenants between two kings. And that way, covenants are a lot like peace treaties. It says, you do this for me, you pay this tax to me, and I will defend you. This, I, this word covenant that we see here, it, it carries with it that theological implication from the Old Testament of a covenant. This relationship that is built upon a promise. But Paul, he's, he's contrasting the new covenant with the old covenant. So that we can see that it's not just like Jesus comes in and he sees a covenant and he's like, oh, I'll use this one. Or, you know, I'm going to tidy up this covenant a little bit, make it a little bit better. Jesus himself brings in a new covenant. We see that because Paul is going to explain for us and talk to us about the first covenant. Now, the first covenant in Paul's mind here that he's using to contrast the two comes from the scene at, at Mount Sinai. Remember, the Israelites have been brought up out of Egypt. They're brought to Mount Sinai. God gives them his law, which is to say, if you are to worship me, and you are to worship me, this is how you ought to do it. So Moses reads all the law to the people. He says, this is what you need to do. And then what do they do? There's a ceremony where the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and hyssop, it's sprinkled on the people. And then it's sprinkled on the the book of the law itself. That's the first covenant. That's the old covenant. And Paul is saying that now there's a new covenant. Meaning that you used to worship God with the old covenant. The way that you used to approach God in worship, the way that your sins used to be forgiven, was through the repeated sacrificing of a blood uh, and blood of bulls and goats. But now you have a new covenant, and it's in Christ. It used to be this way, but now it's this way. Think about the context of the book. These Christians were perhaps tempted to say, okay, Jesus is cool and all, but why don't I just go back to temple and offer sacrifice for, for my sins there? Well, why don't I get that hose out of the garbage and hook it back up? That's what Paul is saying, is you don't need these other things. Why? Because Christ has come. He has brought a new covenant in his blood. These four times that we see covenant contrasted new and old is Paul's way. It's Hebrews' way of telling us that there is something better for us, and Christ brings it about. Now the question then becomes, how does Christ bring it about? And this is one of those areas where our, our, the English Standard Version, that's what I was reading from, and, and whatever version you have, the, the word covenant in the original language actually appears not four times, but it appears six times. Can you guess where the other two times are? We just translated it with a different word. It's in verses 16 and verse 17, for where a will is involved. That word will in the Greek is the exact same word as covenant. The exact same word as covenant. Now, it's possible that when Paul was writing Hebrews or or, or preaching Hebrews and it was written down, it's possible that, well, they meant covenant here, 
He uses the same exact word here. He meant something different here, and then he goes back to saying covenant here. Or we understand, or probably they just all mean covenant. They just all mean covenant. So, verse 16, you could read as, For where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So, we're not, I, I, I say all that so that we don't you know, take our minds out of covenant mode. We're still thinking in covenant mode. But this word for will is important. I think it actually helps us understand the nature of a covenant. And in particular, the new covenant. It's not as if Paul couldn't have thought of another word to describe covenant, and he just chose will at at, at random. He chose will because it was conveying a very certain thing. It was conveying, again, this legally binding relationship between two people, between two parties. It's based on a promise. Amy and I have reached a point in our lives where our parents are getting older, Um, my dad is retiring uh, later in 2024, in a few months. And part of his retirement is them downsizing their house, getting rid of a lot of things. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of hard because my parents are starting to talk about things like getting their affairs in orders. And as our parents get older, as we ourselves get older, what's one of the things that we want to do? We want to write a will and testament. What, what, what is a will? You guys all know what a will is, right? Either you have written one yourself or you've had to execute one based on a loved one. But a will is where you say, this is what I want to happen after I die. Now, with that will, after you die, can anyone change it? You might find a very clever lawyer who tries to sneak things around. But what you say you want to happen is what happens. But when does it happen? After you die. So last night, yeah, I think it was last night, my dad sent me a text message and I thought, oh, this is perfect sermon illustration. My dad is beginning to clean up some of his things, go through his old things. And some of you, a lot of you have met my dad. Uh, He led worship here uh, the Sunday that Gwen was born and I couldn't be here. Um, And I love my dad. He's a great guy. Um, but he would not mind me saying this. He is not, how would you, he's not, you know, the exemplar of physical beauty. You don't think of him and think, oh, he looks, you know, we need paintings to be made of this guy. He's not like Mona Lisa or, or Venus or Aphrodite. You're not going to walk around the Art Institute in Chicago or the Louvre in Paris and See, you know, this Keith Sanderson, well, he's, he is the standard of beauty. Yet, uh, we have a very interesting painting of my father that his mom commissioned of him in all of his late 70s, early 80s goodness. I mean, he was slow to come out of the 70s when it got to 82, you know. he was So in this painting, he's got his afro, he's got his plaid suit. And he texted us last night, me and my sister, and he said, I want you guys to be civil about this, um, but you need to decide who gets this after I die so I can put it in my will. The best part of this picture is, sure, it's him with his afro. And we laughed. My sister and I used to laugh about it whenever we'd walk into my grandmother's house. She had it hanging up, and it's just like, oh, my goodness. 
The best part is the frame that it's in. This gaudy gold frame with you know ornamentation all around it. And he said, the frame's got to be worth at least $1,000. And my sister said, you have money hidden that frame? And I mean, this thing is pretty bad. Yet, my sister and I have to decide who's going to get it after he dies. Hopefully, your inheritance from your parents dying is something a little better. I mean, it is priceless. It is one of a kind. But as my parents are beginning to think about their will and their testament, in fact, even now, it makes me think about mine. Or is my family going to be protected if something were to happen to me? My dad gets to decide who gets that picture or who gets his property after he dies. I don't get to choose that. I, I, I am subject to whatever he wants. And that's what Paul is saying here, is that in this covenant, we don't get to choose things. Christ is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's the one who sets the parameters for this. He's the one who tells us, this is what the covenant will look like. But I also don't get to determine how, that, how I receive my inheritance, how I get that picture. That picture becomes mine. My inheritance becomes mine when? Whenever my dad dies. Which I hope is a long time from now. I don't want that picture in my house. No. Um, <clears throat> it says in verse 17 that a will takes effect only at a death. That the covenant comes into power. That the way that we relate with God, the way that we come before him, it only occurs once a death has occurred. Now, it, it, that is hearkening back to verse 15 that says that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant since a death has occurred. The nature of the new covenant then is one in which God is sovereign in this way that we relate to him. He is the one who determines it. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who sets all the parameters and it has been brought into power. It has become binding for us. Why? Because Christ has died for us. He says that not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And then he describes that ritual where the blood was sprinkled on the people and on the law. Blood is death. Blood is death. We're going to sing a song uh, after the sermon is over called There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And I was leading a praise team in singing that once. And the girl on the keyboard, I've probably told you the story before. The girl that was playing the keyboard, she said, can we sing a different song? I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, this is really gross, singing about blood. And I just said, yes, you've got it then. You've got it. When we think about the blood of Christ, we're not talking about, you know, just, oh, happy-go-lucky, this is nice. We're talking about his death. We're talking about his sacrificial death on our behalf. It's gruesome. It's brutal. But for the new covenant to be inaugurated, for it to take effect in our lives, someone had to die. And praise God, we know that it was Christ. 
Now, why did Christ have to die? Yes, to bring in the new covenant. Yes, the new covenant is brought about by his death. But in verse 15, let's just look back there to get an idea. It says, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Why did Jesus have to die? Have you ever wondered that? Why couldn't Jesus have just come down and said, okay, um, yes, I'm, I'm here to save you. Done. Why did he have to die? Well, it makes it very clear, again, that blood is death. Blood is death. We need to understand that in our minds. Look in verse 22. It says that under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Everything is purified by the killing of someone. By the killing of something, by the death of something. And without the shedding of blood or without the death of something or someone, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why did Christ have to die? Because if he did not die, if his blood was not shed, then there would be no forgiveness of sins. And remember in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, which is quoted at length in verse, in in chapter eight, it says that The new covenant is a covenant of forgiveness of sins. So if it's a covenant of forgiveness of sins, then it is a a covenant of the shedding of blood, meaning it is a covenant where someone dies. That someone here is Christ. Christ shed his blood. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. And because his blood was shed, that blood we see, it, it, it looks a lot like the old covenant, but it's better. It looks a lot like it, but it's better. The old one, it, 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 it's cracked. It's, it's not holding its own anymore. We have a new one. And what was happening in the old one is that the copies of the heavenly things were purified. The law, uh, the blood was thrown on the law. The blood was thrown on the people. It was brought into the holy places. And all of these things were to purify it. But now Christ has come and his blood purifies us. And it doesn't just purify the tabernacle or the temple. He goes before God. He goes before God in the true presence of God, in the heavenly places, it says. And he appears on our behalf. It was good. It was good that in the Old Covenant, you could shed the blood of a bull or a goat for the forgiveness of sins. Because if you didn't have that, there was no forgiveness of sins. You were bearing the weight of your sins. What Luke said earlier, all those bad things that we've done, if there's no shedding of sins, if there's no bulls and goats, then we bear all that weight. So if you were in the Old Covenant, you would have said, thank you, God, for providing this bull and this goat for me. But in the New Covenant, now that Christ has died It's better. It's better. Because now we see that Jesus doesn't have to offer himself repeatedly. Christ died once and he died for all. Christ died and he said, it is finished. This is what we'll see in Hebrews chapter 10. But he, he begins to preface this argument for us now. That the priests, they entered the holy places every year, having to offer sacrifices repeatedly. But as it is, 
Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ died and sin is finished. Christ died and forgiveness is complete. I think a lot of times we think about sin in our lives and Christ on the cross in an old covenant way of thinking about it. And it's, it's very much like, like football. I love college football. And I think a lot of times we think of, of our lives, of our sin, of the forgiveness of sin like college football or any sport really. It's like Jesus comes down and he scores a touchdown. Yes, that means I'm going to heaven because Jesus wins. But like tomorrow, you know, I score on the opposite team, I score a touchdown of my sin. Oh, so I need Jesus to go back down and score another touchdown. And so Jesus scores another touchdown, and then, oh, I sinned again, so I need another, Jesus to score another touchdown for me, or at least a field goal. And we have this mindset that our sin is going to keep compounding and compounding, and we just hope in the end that if we pray to Jesus enough, or if we go to him enough, that he's going to score more points in the end. But that's an old covenant way of thinking. In the new covenant, he died once and he put away he put away sin. It's done. You don't have to wake up tomorrow and say, "Jesus, would you go to the cross again for me?" Because Jesus has been to the cross already and he offered himself perfectly and completely. The death of Christ brings about the new covenant. It brings about the forgiveness of sins. And it is perfect, and it is complete, and it lacks nothing. John Owen, many, uh, 400 years ago, some, somewhere around there, he wrote an excellent book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And even that title just brings me great hope and great joy. Because we see in it, we see in it that Christ died, and by his death, death is done. Death has lost its power. But the purpose of this book for John Owen is to to demonstrate that Christ perfectly and completely secured your redemption, your forgiveness of sins, your hope for the future. How? And why? Because he died. Because he died. You don't have to worry. You don't have to hope. You don't have to wonder. Will I be saved on the last day? Will my sins be forgiven? You don't have to hope or worry or be anxious about this. You can know. Why? Because Christ died once for all. And Christ brings the new covenant, this new way in which we relate to God. We have been brought near to God by him, by Christ's blood. And this understanding of covenant as a will also carries with it a third meaning that, that, that Paul is very keen on establishing for us here. And it's this, it's that because of the new covenant, because we are in the new covenant, through the shedding of Christ's blood we will receive the promised eternal inheritance. Well, what is that eternal inheritance? Uh, Verse 15 is clearly related 
back to the previous part of the chapter where we see that we receive eternal redemption. That is, that Christ has bought us and paid for us fully and perfectly. Again, we see that the eternal spirit is offered to us and purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then at the end, verse 28, we see that Christ, having appeared once for all to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because sin's been dealt with. All right? Christ doesn't have to come again and deal with sin. It's not like he, he, he died then to forgive us from some sins and he's going to come back later. No, it's that he can save those who are eagerly waiting for him, which is the full consummation when death is, is destroyed and we will live with him forever. So our inheritance in the new covenant is the forgiveness of sins. It is sanctification. It is sanctification. The blessing of living an ever-increasingly holy life is yours. Why? It's not because we go to temple. It's not because we have to keep sacrificing the blood of bulls and goats. It's because we have the Spirit in our inheritance in the new covenant, is eternal life. It is to live with Him forevermore. So this year, as you end 2023 and you begin to look at 2024, you will almost certainly have anxieties, fears, expectations. I don't know what your 2024 holds for you. For some of you, it holds marriage. For some Who knows? It could mean new children, uh, new jobs, uh, moving to new places. It can mean lots and lots of new things, and it's easy to get anxious about these things. One of the Christmas carols uh, that that we often sing is a song called, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And at the end of one of the verses, it says, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee, or in Christ." Tonight, the coming of Christ to bring the new covenant, to shed his blood for us, to bring about our inheritance in this covenant, it answers all of our hopes and our fears. This year, and in this coming year, I pray that you won't be consumed with guilt and fear and worry, that instead you will consider Christ whose sacrifice once for all saves. Church, we have a new covenant in the blood of Christ. We relate to God. We are brought into a relationship with him based on this promise that Christ will save us, that his shed blood will forgive us of all of our sins. Let's pray. I thank you, God, for the truth of your word. I thank you for the newness of this new covenant. I thank you for the blessings of this new covenant, which are the blessings of the gospel, forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit growing in us, love and devotion to Christ and holiness, and the promise of eternal life where death will be no more. I pray that as we think of this new covenant today, that you will help us to put aside our anxiousness and our fears, but that instead we will be those who wait eagerly for Christ to come the second time to save us as he has done away with all our sins. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.